Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan, everyone, and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th editions of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Marta in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor, and Eyal Baseman. This is episode number eight, the last one, entitled Accountability, How to Tell, in which Marta talks with the founding director of forensic architecture, Eyal Baseman. The second part of the recording is spiced up by questions from radio journalist Urska Henningman, the founder of the future architecture platform Mateusz Celik, artist and researcher Marco Pelhan, and, as usual, our dear online audience. If you missed the previous episodes, you can easily find them wherever you are listening to this one. So, without further ado, here we go. Marta Perano, talking to Eyal Baseman. Hi, hi, Eyal. So, this is definitely the chapter, the last chapter of the reprogramming series. And I am beyond excited to share it with a person that has been incredibly inspiring for me as a thinker, as a journalist, and as a yeah lifelong researcher of the relationship between power and technology. I first fell in love with Ale with his, I think his first solo book in 2007, an essay called Hololand, Israel's Architecture of Occupation, where he describes basically colonization by infrastructure, a story that begins with a single cell tower that is built for security reasons, paradoxically, and quickly turns or branches into the migrant settlement on the West Bank. And then he went and founded Forensic Architecture, definitely my favorite project alive today, a research group based in Goldsmiths University where he teaches, and also a project that has sprouted a new ways of seeing to paraphrase or to co-opt John Berger's title. And it's a way that comes from inverting what Ayo calls the forensic case and turn it against the actors like police, military, government, secret services, etc. He calls this counter forensics. And now he's gonna tell us what counter forensics are. So Hi. <laughs> Hi, Ayel Weissman. Thank hello. you so much. Hello, 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 hello. So happy we get an opportunity to speak again to each other. And I just have an opportunity to thank Janusz Fakinjansa, which is, you know, it's uh, uh, the, the privilege of saying that uh, middle word and meaning it uh, in that context is, uh, is important. Counter forensics, you asked? What is yes. counter forensics? Of all things. Yeah. So I, I can tell you what it's not. It's not like as if um, 
you know, because in, in a sense, it's an inversion of the forensic gaze. Uh, it's not state forensics. It's not coming from the genealogy of the intersection of policing and science that evolved in the 18th and 19th century to govern populations and, um, you know, create the concept of the criminal and delinquent. Uh, through archiving of biometric data, early biometric data like fingerprints, creating photographic archives, uh, etc. Um, it is not as if counter forensics um, is simply like the people have taken over the forensic lab and turned around that tool against the state. Yes, counter forensics investigates the investigators. Um, we never take commissions from the police, uh, the army, the secret services. We only investigate uh, those kind of investigators. But um, it, it, we are using also very different techniques than what the state uses. So in order to think about what forensics is, you need to think about the spaces in which it happens. And there are three spaces in which forensics, that is state forensics, take place. The first is the cordoned off area around the crime scene. Somebody gets shot, the first thing that pops up is a tape, a yellow tape. Um, and that means that that area becomes a zone of exception. It's cut out of daily life. It becomes a space only for state investigators to enter. And if you're not on uniform, you need to flash out your card and you can enter into that. Otherwise, no, inv no un unauthorized investigators are allowed to enter. The second place of forensics is the lab. Um, and that is also another kind of hermetic site of exception that is based on other kind of protocols of purification and controlled science. And the third is, you know, the holiest of holy is the court uh, in which the state regulates speech and the process of establishing facts. Uh, counter forensics need to invert all those three spaces. It needs something to leak out of the uh, cordoned off area. Uh, either it's a leak, literally, and we work a lot with leaks of um, either soldiers, whistleblowing soldiers, whistleblowing police officers, uh, or it is something that was captured before the cordon came up. Um, satellite images, videos from user-generated uh, material, uh, etc. So something needs to cross this sort of impenetrable, otherwise impenetrable border of that site of epistemic and political exception that is the crime scene. Then instead of the counter-forensics in the lab challenges the process of doing science rather than keeping the parameters hermetic, rather than keeping um, the process under closed doors, we are undertaking 
um, a collaborative process that includes scientists, but also activists and also lawyers and also artists, etc., participating uh, in a way that um, proper scientific procedures would frown upon. Uh, I, you know, there is, you know, evidence could not be dirtied. Uh, and we work a lot with dirty evidence, with, a, with the excess in evidence. And the third is the courts. Sometimes we go into the courts. Sometimes we go like, um, like we're trying to, to turn the tribunal into a tribune, you know? like to, to critique the very legal system itself. You know, I come from uh, Israel-Palestine. And um, you know that there the law is not always um, protecting, or never it is. In fact, the law is part of the colonial system itself. And therefore, um, one has to find alternatives to working within uh, legal fora. And um, sometimes these are uh, activist forms, sometimes these are social movements, sometimes these are art and cultural spaces. So this was a very long answer to what is counter-forensics, but it's, it's kind of, it, it has to invent its own methodologies because precisely it is, have to deal, it has to deal with the structural limitations of not having access to the, the crime scene very often and not having access to the court. Uh, so therefore, everything that we're going to be speaking about today is a response to structural limitations. Uh, and how do you make do with fewer evidence? How do you make do with dirtier evidence? How do you, how do you make claims outside the court, etc.? Is the is the, uh, I think, the essence of what we do, Marta. So the thing is, when you're explaining all this, all I think is this is what journalists have been doing. What we have been doing all these years, maybe with less resources, I am constantly uh, participating in events, festivals and congresses where people of the media complain about how they are living in a crisis and, I don't know, big platforms are intoxicating the media ecosystem, etc. And yet I do have a strong impression that we are experiencing a golden era of journalism precisely because of the kind of methodologies that you and your team are developing right now. And so I would ask you, what do you have that newspapers don't have or should have? Or what would be the difference between what a newspaper should be doing, like the way it should be researching and reporting all this material and the way you are doing it? Well, that's a very, that's, this is really an excellent um, question. And in particular, because, you know, one cannot sort of um, box in what journalism is today. Journalism is dynamic. It is changing. It is changing in conversation with science. It is changing in conversation with social media. It is changing in conversation with a sort of like... Um, dark epistemology that is out there that kind of tries to, to demolish facts. So, um, but let's, let's start from um, a sort of caricature of journalism. Uh, a good investigative journalist, and, and you know, I know this is not all it is, but they're very much associated with the idea of the source, of cultivating sources. 
So, you know, say I've been around um, and I've been a military reporter, I would have my sources in the Pentagon or in the Israeli Ministry of Defense or in in the British Army or etc. And, you know, when, when people wanted to make information public, they would let me know what it is. Maybe they'll show me a document. I will not maybe even share this document. I will never quote that person. But... Um, there is an understanding that um, my sources are true because I'm a journalist and that's my ethics. And trust me, here is what, this is what is going on. And the kind of the source protection, uh, not problem, but, you know, part of journalistic work uh, require, you know, precisely the opposite of academic work. And that's not to footnote, not to say who it is, not to say how, you've arrived at a particular fact. Um, open source, on the other hand, is um, has a very different diagram of secrecy. So let's say as, as journalists or investigators, one of the things that we would try to expose are secrets, you know, try, things that we would bring to the public things that are otherwise denied from the public. And, um, and so, so the imagination of the secret that, that exists within the source-based system is as if there is a world of secrets, there is a door behind it, and you need a kind of a way in from the world of the secret to the world of the open. With open source, and open source is open source in investigation is basically harvesting what it is out there, but nobody looks at anyway. Um, open source is you know trying to find out facts about an Israeli invasion, uh, a military strike, bomb strike in Syria, um, an event, um, a police killing a police murder in the US, etc. Not by trying to get to the vaults and to the secret part of the police where the facts are hidden, but actually by trying to find clues that are already out in the public domain. Um, so the conception of the secret that exists in our work and in open source work is the secrets are already out there. We just don't know where to look for them. And we don't know how to look when we when we when we find them. We need to find new ways of looking, of connecting, of cross-referencing, of building cases, of constructing, uh, you know, kind of uh, exposures as a complicated thing. The things are out there because if you have a policy such as extraordinary rendition, one of the biggest known secrets, but still a secret of the CIA in the context of the war on terror was that they, the CIA was grabbing people, say in a, in a Pakistan-Afghanistan frontier, but in other places. Uh, they were flying them to third countries and from them to fourth, fifth, sixth countries where um, they could bypass the prohibition on US agents to engage in torture but um, um, by actually kind of like outsourcing torture to, to other people. But these cases required a network of planes, and the planes required a network of, you know, 
petrol and receipts and subcontractors, uh, etc. So effectively, the most secret CIA operation in the history of the 21st century has left enormous amount of traces in the open. And those traces existed on social media and those traces could be arrived at from freedom of information requests and those traces could be arrived by simply plane spotting and seeing that planes that are landing in all sorts of places were not really registered in, 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 a, in a way that is understandable where they're going from where to where. And you can start constructing the secret from the shadows it leaves in the visible world. Uh, so it's not that this is not journalism. Journalism has, you know, always had an open source dimension to it. And journalism has been very fast in adopting these techniques uh, through pioneers such as Bellingcat and others. And, you know, you have major news organizations are doing open source research. But it's very different from the source-based secret kind of source that you have that tell you things. Uh, that cannot be verified. It's based on verification from an enormous amount of information. Uh, so, you know, uh, Yas was saying that one of the first cases that we worked on was in Gaza. And in fact, it was on exposing an Israeli horrible and secret order. And the order was that if an Israeli soldier falls captive, by Palestinian armed group, you would enact something that is called the Hannibal Directive. And the Hannibal Directive was a secret command that allowed soldiers effectively to kill one of their own, lest they become a prisoner. Now, one way to expose it would be to have a source to tell you, oh yes, there is this command and it's locked here in this, uh, in this building in Tel Aviv. The other one, and this is what we were doing, was um, to actually connect fragments of facts, 7,000 video um, that we found online, uh, in order to see exactly what happened and in order to show the intentionality in that uh, process. Let me first remind our viewers that you can leave your own questions in the box that Anxiama provided for this purpose. And if you're lucky, then AL will answer them after my own questions. But going back to the thing, this reminds me of, there was this essay that Malcolm Gladwell wrote and published in The New Yorker, I think around 2005, precisely called Open Secrets, where he was talking about the fact that there was like a different kind of journalism that was manifested after the Enron scandal. It's funny how far away that feels right now. And uh, he was talking precisely about this, no, like the sources, secret base kind of journalism of the Watergate, where you have like a deep throat that meets you at three in the morning in some garage. And then you work on that for three years and you spend mm -hmm. half the time, you know, finding out whether he's legit or not. And then there was the Enron case where there was like two people in the Washington Post basically reading through in uh, the immense, like in, insufferable amount of paperwork, because all the secrets that exposed Enron's mal, mal, uh, cough, I don't even know the name in English for this, like criminal <laughs> conduct was actually in the open. It was just that you required enormous amount of energy and time from, you know, qualified 
journalist in order to find out. So exactly, th- this, this makes me think one of my favorite projects of f- forensic architecture is the one you did around the investigation you did around the sweatshop in, uh, in Pakistan that burned. And I was so mm. impressed by the layering of your research that involved mm. all sorts of bureaucratic paperwork, including mm. what the permissions and different paperwork that the building had gone through mm. in previous mm. years and mm. all the different, I don't know, visits that they had from, I guess, their health minister <laughs> appointees and, and things like that. And I was thinking, well, the one thing that forensic architecture has that newspapers do not have is time. Time has mm. become in a world of where we literally drinking data, soaked in data, surrounded mm. by data, mm. data all the time. You have the luxury of time. And at the same time, you have the affordance of your own tools, no? Because, for instance... Our second guest in the series was Benjamin Bratton, and he talks a lot about this idea of, of this planetary scale computation layer that should be given us enough information to, to sort out our existential climate problems, among other things. And of course, one of the problems is that most of this technology is in the hands of the same companies that benefit from not solving the problem. In this case, forensic architecture is working with data that has been, you said, leak, that is sort of like leaking from this machine, no? From this machine, mm-hmm. like you, can, you can even say that that you are using the master's tools uh, to dismantle the master's house in a way, but in a, in a very kind of like twisted, twisted manner. And I wonder, for instance, you are producing your own tools for this purpose. And we've talked about this before. You said that every case that you take is a case that that generates its own forensic tools and research tools. And then these tools become useful for similar cases that other people can take, for instance, in newspapers. So, um, so what would be, like after how long it's been, 10 years, you've been, <laughs> you've been repeating this process with different cases. So what would be the, the things you have learned that we could incorporate in our practice in the media world? In journalistic practice? Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, uh, I guess I've learned that, you know, really the value of patience and quality and I've realized, so, so let, 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 let's go back to that moment where there is a spill. And, you know, the spill comes as terabytes. And today, open source uh, harvesting, right, what you get from uh, on an online search around an incident is no longer three, four videos from three, four perspectives that you can reconstruct. Uh, but, you know, our work in Hong Kong, for example, had to deal with thousands and thousands of videos, each one more than, you know, between an hour and two hours long because they were streaming. It was the, the, the entire duration of the event. So the, the volume of data increases. Uh, and then you always need to find... So it's not simply, okay, to say it's there and you can find it. 
uh, you need to learn how to look again. The process of looking for us, and this is where the architecture in you know, the forensic architecture is, looking is construction. So, you know, typically would start with a 3D model. And a 3D model would anchor all the data, the documentary data and the videos and the photographs and the satellite and the testimony, because we interview people within our 3D models. We can talk about that later. Uh, further, if you like, Marta. Um, and the 3D model becomes a navigational device, backwards and forwards in time, left and right, up and down. So navigation in space and navigation in time. And it's a database, it's a dynamic database. Um, so that the act of viewing becomes an act of construction. It's literally architectural, you know, you have it in space and time. You create a space that, you know, Walter Benjamin called the build round, the image space. You are surrounded by images from all perspectives. It's not simply, uh, you inhabit the space of images, the space of media. Now, architecture is excellent to do that. What I've learned is that you know, at, at the beginning, we wanted to be as fast. We, we wanted to keep the beat. We wanted to, you know, to like to, to, to be working on stories fast, to have them out there, like, like in a media uh, cycle. And we understood it's an error because there's another dimension to our work. And that is, you know, opening up the imagination. Uh, as to what is possible to do. And also because often we are not journalists in the sense that, you know, we're covering different parts of the world or there are areas that interest for us and we would go there. We are commissioned to do work. We would not enter a space of people's trauma uninvited. I will not go to investigate the death of a person unless their friends or their loved ones, the, the bereaved family would ask me to do it. Or not go to investigate cases of um, environmental destruction of a community that is in the front line of that is not asking me. And that's not how journalism works. And then the process of honoring a life lost, the process of resisting political oppression requires care and it requires time, and it requires very, very slow, sometimes negotiation and understanding uh, as we work with these communities that are at the forefront, as we learn from them, as we adopt their language and aims. We do not want to work also like Amnesty, like a human rights organization, a kind of universal human rights organization that with stations everywhere. Um, we do not want to have a neutral position to the situation that we report upon. We're not impartial. We're always partial. We have a much more activist position. We're precise. We'll give the information. We'll not say things that we think are untrue, that we found are untrue. But we would, we would basically lend our techniques and tools to a particular, um, to a particular struggle. Uh, in a struggle to which we were invited, uh, particularly. And uh, after the leadership of the people in the forefront, 
And, you know, not always we did that. Sometimes we, we, we learned from our mistakes when we didn't do that and we, when we could see that well-meaning intervention could end up disempowering people that are in the forefront of particular struggles. So uh, it became very important for us to say, we'll take few cases, very few cases. We'll give them the care and the time and the learning that they require. We would invest a lot in, the pro in, in, in making the product proper, clear, and you know, perfect to our uh, understanding of it as a way of honoring that request of people asking us. When bereaved parents or other relatives come to me and, and they ask what to do, I said, the only thing that we can promise you is when we have taken your case and we take maybe one of every you know, 20 requests that comes to us, when we take it, we will commit ourselves fully to discover uh, the truth about what has happened and we will explain it in the best way we can. We'll not cut corners. And our way of honoring your pain and your struggle is through, you know, through the care uh, and uh, detail, careful and detailed work. Uh, and that is, so the, the entire ethical position is very different than uh, than journalism. And this is why it lends itself sometimes to cultural venues and art venues, because they allow us to expose a case on its multiple dimension. Every, each one of those forums that we present our work, whether it's the court, the parliamentary commission of inquiry, truth commission, uh, people's tribunal, protests somewhere, uh, media of various forms, social media, art and cultural spaces, each one is imperfect. Each one conditions and limits what you can say in a different way. The way for us to avoid, to offset the limitation of each one of those forums is to take the same piece of work, present it in the court to do one kind of work, and that work is, you know, very linear sometimes. Yes or no, you know, what happened between this, in this millisecond, in this split second. Um, and then in the media, you tell another story. And when you put it in a gallery, you can actually unpack the social, the historical, and sometimes theoretical dimension of what it is that you do. So it, 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 this is, what I've learned is slow down, don't rush. Doing fewer cases well is better because showing quality, showing, investing the limited resources, it's not like we have more resources in general. We have much less. We're a small group. We work on small budgets, but, but we can focus our resources. That's what we do. We focus all our resources on a particular, you know, kind of like molecule of, of, of the world, no? We, we zoom in our energy onto, onto something very small. We work in large teams, very multidisciplinary, we work with the people that we put a lot of pressure on this acupuncture, um, you know, kind of on this, on this point. Because by doing it well, 
you show the state that you oppose, you show the police, you show the military, you show the secret service, that civilians, that civil society, the social movement can provide that level of clarification, that we can do that. And, and showing the possible is better than simply working on a kind of, uh, on, a, on an equal blanket level and covering all cases uh, in the same way. So, you know, we had it from the start, but I, I you know, I think that is, that was a right decision. Uh, and I think this is what uh, we need to do more, less cases very well, because we want our cases to become exemplary, both technologically in the sense that we will develop new tools for that and then we'll make it public. But not in terms of the imagination. You can do that. This is possible. And then, you know, inspire others also to, to, to engage in, uh, in similar work. That was actually the next question I was going to ask you, because given the fact that you are focusing so granularly in exemplary cases precisely to provide with the toolkit that would be useful for similar ones in the future also, in the ideas world, and we will eventually talk about your cloud atlas, which is ingenious and interesting, and also exemplary of, of the kind of ideas that, that come from your, your modeling of real space storytelling. My question was, can you scale it up? Like I was thinking, for instance, now that we are done with the COP26, uh, which has been useless in every possible way, but for the you know, ability to annoy all the important people <laughs> and uh, and cause despair and, uh, and frantic nihilism, I guess. But I was thinking a lot about how the tools for accountability are missing and in a large scale, the tools for like accounting restoration, for instance, are missing and how useful would be the kind of tools that you are developing in forensic architecture for, you know, climate activists all over the world precisely for this very purpose, considering that a COP26 can be like a court, no? Like you can go there <laughs> and prove that the restoration that was promised never happened, that the promises of the previous COP also never happened and create like a framework to account for all this missing, I don't know, missing objects of goodwill, I guess, from the big economies, big companies, etc. So do you think these tools that you're developing can be scaled up to be used by activists all over the world for this very large court environment, say? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, sometimes we think about the question of scale as a question of growing our office. And yes, I mean, we, we are bigger than, you know, we were a few years ago. Now we're about 30 of us now. There are, we have several offices uh, in one in Berlin that we just opened uh, and others, which I, I don't want to mention right now. Um, and so this is one way of increasing capacity. The other is more to think slightly more like academics, not like, um, like a company or like a business. And, uh, and that is like a field to grow as a field rather than as a practice, rather than as, you know, our office. And to grow as a field means 
to always be in exchange, in conceptual exchange with other people um, that, that are working within that. And, and we see a field is growing and we are part of an ecosystem of organizations. Uh, many of them are members of the Investigative Commons, Laura Poitras and Bellingcat and uh, ECCHR, obviously, the kind of bigger one, sort of very, very feisty group of lawyers based in Berlin. Uh, Febrier, a group of Arab investigative journalists, uh, uh, and, and, and others in other places uh, in the world. And I and grow, you know, ideas grow faster than, than companies. And, um, you know, that is really where, you know, the kind of the other hat that we have. So we spoke about journalism, we spoke about forensic work. We are also, we're based in the university and I'm an academic. And forensic architecture is an academic project in the sense that it's a research unit in the university. Therefore, you know, I'm committed as an academic to the public, um, to the greater public, to to make our idea, to to generate and disseminate ideas. We only take cases in as much as they are an opportunity to develop new ideas of technologies and disseminate them. We cannot keep and we don't want to keep anything uh, proprietorial to us only. So that is the, the way is not to, you know, it, it's to be open, to be in exchange with other practitioners, and to know that things grow in an unexpected way. No, I mean, the, the technology is that, you know, Bellingcat and us were working with, you know, like, uh, you know, open source research and, and, and modeling. Uh, some of them are in the mainstream now. So, you know, there's a unit in the New York Times that is doing very similar things to us. They have much more capacity, more people, more money, so they do more work. Um, and perhaps their focus is slightly different that they're not, com you know, they're not really needing to develop every time a new, a new idea, though they're doing very well. Uh, the Washington Post now open it. BBC is open, uh, you know, kind of units like ours. Uh, it's growing in the human rights sector. Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have now their own kind of open source labs and forensic uh, architectural, using forensic architectural techniques. Um, there are things that don't happen directly. I mean, in those examples, we, we had a, you know, we, we had agency and being in exchange and helping set those things up. Um, in other places, things just pop up. You know, other people have other ideas that intersect with those. You can see a field growing, um, then, um, and the kind of scaling up works as a sort of a consolidated network of things. And whereas in the past, I think, you know, definitely the issue of human rights tend, tend to be much more monopolized than any other field. I mean, what, what kind of, I mean, only in the tech business, you have that level of quasi-monopoly like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have in the, in the human rights field, like big clearinghouses. I mean, doing excellent work, obviously. Um, you know, work that we all depend on. Um, but we, our thought is not to grow, but to actually network with others, to create ecosystematic way of thinking. Um, to, it's, it's how you link, not how you grow. 
and we want to kind of be part of always different ecosystems that work in on particular issues. So when we work in Palestine, you know, we have the the groups there that are you know very rooted there, and we've worked a lot. And uh, both organizations and individuals that we would collaborate with, and in other places it would be others, but we don't need to expand and kind of develop. And uh, I, I know that it's not what you were saying at all. Uh, so, so I think that yeah, but maybe the important thing that that I wanted to say is that when you when you work from an academic perspective, you you understand that I, that that ideas have their own trajectory. Well, before I ask my next question, let me remind again the viewers that you can ask your own questions. Use the box that Axioma has provided for you. So how do you pick your cases? Like, I know you try to pick different cases to develop different tools for them, as as, as you have mentioned before. But is it like a, like a combination of cost, source, in the sense of, you know, you don't pick cases from companies, for instance? Or what is what is the what is the manual for convincing forensic architecture to take your case? Firstly, it's the sincerity of the people that approach us. So as I said before, Marta, we you know, we have learned not to enter the space of trauma uninvited. We're working very close with the human body and on on the human body and what has happened there to keep that dignity, you you cannot just like say, oh, I want to work on this because that is an interesting or an important case because you become, you, you, you don't know what exactly how that case is being played out uh, emotionally and socially within a community and politically. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. We need to be invited. So we much more now like private eyes than, um, than um, you know, than kind of like a research agency that decides its own direction. Though we understand that there is a bias with it. There are people that will be connected and will know us and they will be part of a particular class of people worldwide. They could be, you know, we work in, in Colombia as we work in, in Indonesia now, and, and, you know, across the world, but but it would be only some people that would know about us and would have the confidence to approach us. Uh, so we need to sometimes make ourselves um, available uh, in different ways. And we can talk about that later. So that's, that's one thing. Second, we have a kind of a diagram that is called the long duration of a split second, meaning when we investigate that kind of minutia of time, split second, you know, always the police said they've killed somebody in a split second decision. Uh, it's the smallest unit of perceptual time, the indivisible unit of perceptual time. We'll always locate it in the world of which it is part. If we look at the molecular level of time, we want to see in them the structural forces, the long histories that have brought things there. So when we look at uh, police killing in the UK of Mark Duggan, uh, a black man shot in Tottenham. Uh, we need to ask that question in relation to a history of black resistance to British policing. 
and um, and how that was articulated. And so, what 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 are we seeing in that microseconds analysis, and how to tie to the history of colonialism, um, to the history of migration and uh, over policing of racialized bodies. Same in Palestine. Now, if we investigate the killing of a kid. Uh, by the Israeli soldiers, we would we would see it within the kind of as an iterate it, iteration of a longer history. So, test number one, I will invite. Test number two, does, is there a kind of an acupunctural diagram? I mean, can we enter through a single putting pressure on a single point and describe wider political forces? Uh, three is um, technologically, are we the right people to do? Uh, can we come up with something uh, that could could our optic capture a particular situation? And in as much as as, as the answer is yes, so in as much as is could be, um, we would take it. Uh, so we, we we say often. I don't know if it's always true, but we aspire not to take cases that we know how to do that we can that we can tell in the first moment what would be the result. Um, we would we would tend to pass it on to people that we you know that we train or uh, you know uh, it, we 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 would pass on on something like that. Um, so that is that is that. Sometimes there's a question of uh, of affordability if we can if we can find find it funding for something, and then our funding is very stratified also. So we have the academic grants that take care of the research and development and the dissemination of ideas. So that's kind of like the bottom fourth of our, you know, cake, layered cake, beautiful Slovenian layered cake that I, uh, at least one thing, maybe it's Viennese, but I ate it in, uh, in Slovenia when I was there last. Uh, and then you have the, you know, then you have the human right funding there. So maybe you have tech funding there. And then at the top, maybe you have some money that you get from a museum that can help you put the extra care on the edit uh, of film or something like that. So how often do you say no? Just too often. It's heartbreaking, but the, yeah, that, that, that's the, 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 almost the default. Right. Now. And the general cost, I mean, when you say no, because you don't have the technical abilities, is that something that happens? Because it seems to me that that would be incompatible with your needing the challenge, no? Yeah, but, but we say, we see that, you know, actually what they need is a, is a good DNA specialist or actually what they need is, is a good, um, you know, psychologist or uh, a forensic psychologist or what what is needed something else it's not within our field it's not it, it's just too far out that, that this is not something that we can develop i suddenly imagine you like olivia pope you know the main character of the soap opera scandal <laughs> where people go with their assassinations and she's like consider it handled <laughs> mm -hmm. um so let's go back to the aesthetics part of all this all this business because it is obvious that aesthetics are a very very important part of your trajectory like you've written at least two books about them you just published a book about the forensic aesthetics when you talk about the new york times and the washington post developing their own 
for cities a la forensic architecture, what is clear to me is that they are doing the things in your aesthetic, no? Like, you know, this idea of building up from a 3D model and then creating a story that happens in this in this space, this three-dimensional three understanding of a single event. So what are the keys to the aesthetics that you're developing? So that's a very, uh, you know, you're right, Marta. I just published a book on aesthetics together with my colleague, Mark Goldsmith, Matthew Fuller. It's called Investigative Aesthetics. And I, I'm so deep in it that I don't know if I can give a short answer. I'll try because it's kind of a very complicated and uh, uh, argument that we're trying to, to develop there. Initially, we say the category of aesthetics should be completely seen outside of the kind of the notion of beautification or judgment uh, towards art object or to, to the way things are pleasing or not or to have a style. So aesthetics is a form of registration. The aesthesis in, in Greek is that which is perceived, uh, that which leaves a trace. And um, the perception is not only in our system, is not only human perception. So there's an aesthetic of your chair, of the desk on which you speak, and, and it reads your body temperature um, and it changes in relation to it, even in a very, very micro level. So the table is aestheticized to your hand, to your body that is next to it. Um, and likewise, every surface from a leaf sensing the sun to the earth uh, sensing radiation to a wall of a building sensing a trajectory uh, projectile that, that is uh, thrown at it. Uh, these are sensing surfaces. And then we move on to describe something that we call the hyperstatics. Hyperstatics is an act, so it's not describing the fact that everything senses in the world. This is almost truism and obvious. But to say that we need to amplify aesthetics uh, perception. We need to find a way to look deeper into photographs and into what is inscribed in them. And we need to learn to look closer at material surface to identify very carefully the traces that are there and to stare at them sometimes for hours until they give us those secrets. Uh, and we need to know how to work on a relation between those different material sensing surfaces, uh, a film, the negative that senses, the table that senses, the wall, the plant. How do you build something of a relation uh, between them? Uh, so that is really what, what it is that aesthetics play for us. It's the amplification uh, of our capacity to register traces. And obviously today, a lot of it is done digitally. So we, we, we are kind of thinking that we're living in a hyperstatic um, time, simply because we always registered, we always tracked, uh, every digital move that we do leaves a trace, uh, and those traces are being harvested and processed by various sort of uh, big data, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence systems. Uh, so that is, this is the kind of aesthetics that, that we refer to. 
rather than how our things look. But of course, we also know that there is a paradox that every forensic and every legal specialist is aware of. And that is, you know, like a lawyer, you know how important is presentation, your rhetoric, your quality of your presentation within within a within a court system, let's say, how much it would depend, the verdict would depend on the quality of that. And every and every forensic specialist knows how important is, you know, the quality of your presentation within court, actually also visual or auditory uh, in that context. But even if we know though, we need to hide the fact it even depends on aesthetics because people perceive aesthetics as a trickery People perceive aesthetics as a kind of a play, an emotional trickery or sort of a illusory play. In fact, when I gave my book as a gift to one of the lawyers we work with, he said, that's all very, very interesting, Eyal, but when I call you to the stand, would you please promise me never to mention the word aesthetics in relation to, for, to your forensic work? And I said, I understand exactly what you mean. I remember... A few years ago, not so long ago, there was a newspaper, a national newspaper in Spain that published a pretended leak that had all the aesthetics of a redacted official document that had been photocopied a number of times mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. given away, maybe to eliminate traces of, of, of different machines no? that could be that could identify a source. And I thought that was very interesting. Like, what does this offer as a document? What the look of this document is offering to the reader, no? Like, you know, all the layer of significance that comes that comes under that. And I think a lot about that when I see forensic architecture's work. And I even think like, you know, what, what kind of influence would they be having from a world that has been watching CSI for the last 20 years and have been soaking in leak paraphernalia. No, it seems that the WikiLeaks school of journalism has also produced like an idea of what constitutes a legitimate document. No? And I wonder when you're developing these new tools that have a lot to do with storytelling because your tools are not only for research, like the layer that we see more often is the layer of the storytelling layer, which is also one of the reasons why I wanted to finish the reprogramming series with you, because you know, oh, we started really... with Kim Stanley Robinson that proposes mm -hmm. a new way of, of thinking about the future, and you propose new ways of thinking about information and reading the world. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I wonder how intoxicated you are from a world of CSI uh, serials and, you know, and this, this, this infatuation that journalism has these days with a leak and with a kind of like NSA, <laughs> NSA toolbox and the sort of aesthetics. Do you feel mm, a bit mm. uh, contaminated by that? Do you find that useful mm, maybe mm. when you're developing? I never watched CSI. I hate it. I hate uh, detective uh, novels and, you know, which is really surprising because that's what I should be watching, no? Um, but I, I try to steer away from that genre very much because I find in it, you know, 
in the contours of that, of the kind of CSI, you know, police drama, exactly the diagram of repression that I'm afraid of. You know, somebody is being usually a vulnerable person designated as a deviant. The state is the guarantor of order, uh, would clarify things and would reestablish the order and the peace uh, mm-hmm. through, you know, kind of like an enlightened, enlightenment sort of science and, and procedure. Uh, it doesn't have the guts. It doesn't have the activism. It doesn't have the, um, the kind of the force of protest that I like or that I aspire to include in our work. So it's not, you know, if it does look like that at the end, um, you know, I'm sorry. I, it's just that I, I don't know how they, you know, I try not to look at CSI videos. Now, in terms of the aesthetics of the document, that's very much more interesting. Also very interesting point that you said. Um, that, of course, there is a kind of an aesthetic in, in a sort of hyper um, media kind of, environment there is something that hito Steyl called poor images no the kind of like the grainy uh badly framed um you know sort of like stolen. shaking yeah, yeah that feel yeah that feel more authentic uh and the document kind of like the handwritten document or hand redacted document where you see the kind of the the way this the hand of the state kind of like cutting out information from it. I, I find this is the rare kind of things that we find. We're existing much more in an era of like digital information. We'd usually see uh, if there are images at all, they would be very much code. Or what's interesting about those images is the code or the metadata or other elements that are not necessarily visual and don't have the kind of the, the aesthetics of the, um, of the old file. Uh, it's funny that because whenever we ask um, a graphic designer, you know, we need sometimes to, you know, to get letterheads or logos or all sort of books and stuff, everybody's first idea tend to be, oh, let's, let's make your identity look like an old sort of like gray, uh, paper file, because that's what people think with forensics, and they go like, it's completely what we are like, you know, the entire essence of the practice is, is, is against this, it goes against that kind of image. I mean, we train machine learning algorithms to help us see. I mean, when I say the kind of the act of seeing is complicated and require construction, is because uh, we ca- just simply cannot have enough people looking at 4,000 hours of a certain incident and you need to automate part of the of the viewing and the viewing is now of no longer of poor images in a hitoshtale sort of sense but of like high resolution um you know good audio you know like you have a lot of information in every second of a video hmm. Well, maybe your aesthetics, what they play is the depth of data that is proven by the reenactment, no? Like, you know, in the sense of uh, 
maybe Tom McCarthy's remainder <laughs> sort of reenactment yeah. of, of an event that yeah. the three-dimensionality of the reenactment proves in a way from an aesthetic point of view that the research has been deep enough to know how much how long a wall was. And I think this is a very good moment to talk about the cloud atlas. Tell us what a cloud atlas is and why did you need it <laughs> to look at a scene from the right angle? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, you know, it kind of started when I was, um, you know, before really forensic architecture was a thing, in 2008, I was asked by human rights organization based in Palestine to call into Gaza. Gaza was under intense, horrible bombardment in 2008, in the winter. And they asked me to call because they didn't want people to call with um, the Israeli dialing code. Uh, so I was in London and calling uh, those people. And one of the people told me, you know what? I am, I, I think I'm breathing in my home. My home has turned from solid to gas and I'm breathing in my home. And I understood that, you know, as an architect, I thought it was very interesting for me, you know, architecture can exist in a gaseous form because, you know, the bomb cloud or everything that the building was, they're plaster and they are stone and they are glass and they are wood and they are curtains and they are, the drugs that you have in your kitchen, all of that get mixed together, sometimes parts of human bodies, and, and that, you know, makes all sort of dynamic shapes, and then it falls. And then we understood also that those shapes are exactly what can allow us to create the most important thing when you do open source research. So everybody, oh, you should know, but I hope our viewers know, that when you do open source research, you look at, okay, what happened in Gaza on, you know, the 1st of August 2014. Uh, you look at it online, you, you, um, you put some hashtags and some keywords, and you get, you get videos. You don't know exactly where they were taken because YouTube and Facebook and Twitter removed the metadata. So you have to rely on what people say. Because people would say, I took it here and there. Uh, but you need to check that. Uh, so the biggest problem of open source information is the first thing is to create a timeline, which, which video is before and which is after, what's the relation in time, and where exactly are they taken. And to do that, you need things in the image that we call physical clocks, i.e., something in the image need to give you an idea of what, uh, of what the time is when you film. And, you know, we're working with shadows and we are analyzing the length of shadows and the direction of shadows, and this helps us find different things. And finally, we realize that the best way to do it is to actually look at the sky, because every cloud is always unique at any particular moment. And when you create a cloud atlas, a mapping of the skies, almost every video includes a little bit of sky in it, and every sky has got a cloud or two inside it. And every cloud is different at any given moment. I, if you can create a map of the sky, you can locate in relation to it each video that you find. 
Um, and that is the Cloud Atlas. And Cloud Atlas, as you know, is also interesting for us from a conceptual, art historical point of view. Cloud Atlases is what um, is really the beginning of collaboration between artists and scientists, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Kind of meteorology evolves out of very similar to us, different because it's a different time, um, painters and scientists working together to classify the sky, to understand what clouds are which, what types they are and how they behave. And the thing about clouds is that they always move faster than the speed of the hand could capture them. Therefore, they always have to be imagined or modeled rather than simply described. The act of representation is not linear, it's complicated. It's either imaginative or it's, or it's mathematical. And this is where we started to get interested in clouds. And we realized that a lot of our work is dealing with clouds with a weaponization of the air. You know, we're working a lot on tear gas, obviously. That's a kind of the most basic anti-democratic kind of substance that pushes people out of the public space where people gather and stand in close proximity. Um, but then we were looking at chemical strikes uh, in different places, gas that, you know, basically create an unlivable zone, kill people, Syria and elsewhere. Then we were looking at uh, forest fires and that scaled it up again. So forest fires in, in Papua or in, in, in the western part of Indonesia, uh, creating clouds that are continental in scale, they're covering, you know, 12 different countries at the same time from you know, from uh, East Papua to all the way to Thailand, for example, uh, leading to hundreds of tens of thousands of premature deaths. So, so in a sense, cloud is allowing you to scale up. You know, the question of scaling up, thinking about cloud is thinking across scales, across time, uh, but it has always the same capacity. How do you map that which constantly changes? And what is the territory that the cloud produces? What kind of architecture is produced? You know, usually our architecture is hard surfaces of buildings and it's the grids into which we are attacked by those planners that pigeonhole us into our place within the grid. But the cloud cuts through it and it creates a territory that is dynamic, but it's a shared condition. And I wonder whether as uh, architect, rather than thinking about the hard space, we should look at this sort of dynamic amorphous gases uh, territory of the cloud. Well, definitely, that looks a lot like the kind of planetary scale computation <laughs> that we would need to look at the sky in productive ways, to look at the planet in productive ways and do something about its existential crisis. Oh, okay, so I am now warned that my time is almost over, so I have to leave you with our guests. There are three guests in the studio in Ljubljana today, waiting for their turn to ask you their questions. So, hello, first guest. How are you doing? Hello. Hi, great. Thank you for this very interesting conversation. I have so many questions, but let me 
decide on one. So as I understand, you developed the Cloud Atlas because you lacked the information that you couldn't gather from tech giants. So I was wondering, maybe are you hoping to one day cooperate with them to get the information that would help you easier find some uh, clues? Um, are you jealous about the information that they have? Would you like to, I don't know, tackle that forensic architecture on the digital space in the way that you're doing in a physical space? Thank you. Um, I don't know if I, you know, simply jealous of the information they have. I just don't think they should have it. I think this should be public domain information in as much as people are happy to share that. But um, we are also working on um, digital violence and we recently collaborated with Amnesty and Citizen Lab on uh, on an analysis of uh, the Pegasus attacks, and we wanted to see. And if you if you look online in our investigation, it is really doing a kind of um, digital investigation, or the uh, investigation of digital violence of hacks, of this horrible kind of spyware. Pegasus is uh, an Israeli-made spyware that was used to hunt down and spy on, on activists and journalists all, all over the world. Um, what does it mean to do open source research on um, digital violence? It means to see what is the relation between different hacks. Not so much. We don't have the capacity in our studio. That's what Amnesty and what Citizen Lab do to detect that software. Now, what we could see is what's the relation between this hack and another hacks, or between this hack and events that happen to a person in a physical world. What interested us is what happened to somebody the moment they get hacked. What happened to their lives? What happens to their livelihood? What's happened to them to the well-being? Uh, what you know? What other forms of physical violence they would experience? Very often, break-ins and intimidation. They would lose their job. They would have to go exile. So we wanted to see how that digital level of violence interact with the physical world and and demonstrate that that surveillance is not simply a matter of privacy. That it results in in you know very traditional forms of violence, like in the case of Hashogji, murder even. So. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and also as as Benjamin always says, that data is not the data we need. <laughs> it's not the good data. We need different data. The one that uh, the digital platforms are collecting. Hi. Hello. Hello. In 2019, when I was still directing Museum of Architecture and Design in Ljubljana, your work was exhibited in the museum as part of Biennial of Design. Uh, it was a research on uh, the living death camp, the Starosaimiste in Belgrade. And it was a part of the Biennial that dealt with the data information and how it grows into knowledge and becomes wisdom 
in the conversation, you mentioned also how your field should be growing or how drawing as a field was something you talked about with Marta and uh, how units of similar to your office are popping out in media outlets and in uh, uh, human rights uh, organizations. And I was wondering if forensic architect is the new profession that is necessary and needed now. Does it and how does it, the knowledge, the methodologies, the tools that you developed, approaches in your pioneering work, how do they enter education now in journalism, in architecture, in criminology? And uh, do, do, do you see that? I mean, thank you. This was very generous. Um, I think it would be a sad, sad world if ours would be <laughs> what, what architects need to do. I think architects need to do fabulous, uh, accessible, available environments for, um, for the public. I think that, um, you know, I would have loved to be uh, and I was trained and I'm actually, I'm not sure I'm very, uh, I would be totally bad at that. Um, I, I had an office in Tel Aviv when I was much younger. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I'll show you, Marta, if I, if I feel confident enough uh, what it is that, uh, that we produced in this office. Um, but in a sense, there is a bigger question than, than, than the question of architecture. I, I know you were not, this is not exactly, you, you were asking a, a bigger question than that, but I'm kind of taking it as a springboard to say, how do we organize um, intellectual work in university? How do we organize the relation between the humanities and sciences? How do we, um, rewire the relation between prospective professions like architecture, future-oriented, no, planning for, uh, and uh, analytic ones, uh, his history, no? I mean, somehow, even if we, we do, we, we work for a year on a split-second scenario, you know, it's, it's both architecture and its history, as it is journalism, as it is human rights, as it is law. And I think that what, what is interesting, what could be maybe broadly inspiring about our path is the way in which um, a problem, a particular problem, if you don't come at it from a disciplinary perspective, uh, is weaving around it the necessary forms of knowledge, the necessary practices, filmmaker with an architect, an archaeologist with a lawyer, a botanist with, you know, somebody that is um, very good in, in, in memory reconstruction, a psychologist or psychiatrist, etc. Um, and in a sense, I think that it kind of, us sitting here at the university, completely ch challenges this sort of like, you know, sort of siloed way in which... Um, uh, in which, you know, the kind of education uh, is happening. And I think also, and this is something that Matt and I have written in the, in the book, Investigative Aesthetics, that uh, the investigative mode is also a challenge to the critical mode with which we lived for, you know, 100 years or so uh, in, in the humanities. 
Uh, it's not that it needs to surpass it. It's not that it's not critical. It includes uh, elements of of criticality and criticism, because we need sometimes to deconstruct state statements, statement made by lying statements made by states, as we need to construct something new. But the investigative mode has a different motor to it. Uh, a problem is something to be discovered that organizes and bring together different forms of knowledge, different kind of energies, different sort of, um, yeah, different speeds and different directions of thinking. That's something that's really inspiring me in that uh, because it's a way of reaching out. Uh, so for me, architecture is not like... Um, a disciplinary home or like a disciplinary fortress is like an airport from which you leave in different destination and weave your way as you do so. Thank you. It would be nice to have a forensic architecture in every newspaper though, a forensic <laughs> architect. Mm. Maybe you should start sprogging <laughs> like that all through the international media. Hi, hi, Al. Hi, Mata. Uh, so, Hello. yeah, it will be good. I mean, it's actually happening, right? More or less, the discipline is slowly becoming a reality. And that's very encouraging, actually. Even if you look at latest investigations by New York Times and, as Al mentioned, Washington Post and so on, I think we're, we're getting there. But I, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the discipline because, in a way, you know, the, the whole notion of open source intelligence kind of started growing very, very early on as the spread of the access to the networks, the Internet happened, right? And if you look at historically, the US intelligence community started using the term open source intelligence kind of in the mid 90s and opened an office in that regard and so on. So that was a very interesting time. And, you know, in parallel, there was Robert David Steele with his open source intelligence agency who was the first kind of anti-state actor, let's call him so, even though he comes from, a, from let's say, politically another pole. Uh, that started talking about the potential uses of this intelligence as a counter narrative to the official state narratives. But already in intelligence, we, we have, of course, this... Well, okay, let me formulate my question here. You mentioned several times during today's talk that you have to really decide which cases you will take on, yeah? And you mentioned a word, now I forgot it, but it was how much it touches you in, in a way, right? I mean, there was something about that. And so th there's a very emotional, let's call it, that is, in my opinion, quite an emotional kind of point of taking, which is counter to what intelligence gathering is, is supposed to be, which is this very rational process, which I know you are undertaking and you are actually performing it extremely well when that is happening. But of course, there is this pre-filtering and I'm curious about this pre-filtering because that's where kind of the chosen narratives get started and the ones that are not chosen are discarded. And I think that's a very interesting point because if you look mm -hmm. at, you know, Bellingcat has done some incredible work, uh, especially around the whole situation in Russia, contemporary Russia at the moment, by using extremely, you know, astute methods, which 
of course, were uh, could be deemed almost unethical, if you want, right? Because they they also gathered data from a large, large amount of open sources of leaked data or stolen data or bot data on the dark web, which kind of cast a very wide net, yeah, for that investigation. And you have to have a very, very precise methodology where that widely cast net does not catch also unwanted fish, yeah? So I'm just curious, you know, about, because the methods are very similar, right? And uh, I'm just curious about the filtering and, you know, how that happens and what are the discussions around that? Because I think the filtering of the decision-making in these cases is extremely important. That's it's my even, wide you, question. No, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic because um, there is no... You know, there's a kind of a diagram between agency and ethical work, right? And and there are there are there are you know there are principles that we you know there's data protection, you know, sort of regulations, and there is protocols for dealing with witnesses. And there are moments where you need to actually make a decision of, you know, of, um, of how to navigate them and what you actually lose if you don't do that. So now with, with the, you know, with the uh, Navalny, I guess, this is the, you know, the Bellingcat investigation on Navalny, there was, there was that question uh, for Bellingcat. Um, and I know that they were agonizing uh, about it. And I know that it's kind of at the threshold, the, the data that they got of the uh, dark web is kind of at the, at, at the limit of what you can call open source. No, I mean, it's, uh, you, can, you, you need to argue for this to be, uh, to be open source. Uh, on the other hand, it contained what it is that they needed to do and, and they had to measure it. Yeah. In, in, in relation to the success of this uh, project. Um, they, we, we would have in forensic architecture, you know, a very different uh, relation to, as an organization that works very closely and is commissioned usually by victims, uh, we would be much more careful. Sometimes people claim too careful um, you know, when, even if we find things, you know, there, there is, you, you know, in, in, you can find a video that, uh, uh, is on Twitter and has been retweeted 16 times, but you take it, you integrate it into a video that you edit and you know that your video is going to be seen 150,000 times. So you amplify something that is not private, it's in the public domain, but unseen. And you create a different landscape of risk for that person. So if a person would know that they, that they put something on Twitter and that's going to be seen, it could be, uh, I, I guess that their calculation could be different. And we need to always take it into account. So for us, it's not enough that something is in the public domain we need to factor in that kind of uh, adverse uh, effect of amplification. 
So we even, you know, for us, the threshold is not even the public. We take it even further, uh, much further back. And on our work on the, uh, in fact, it was with Bellingcat, a collaboration we did with Bellingcat on the Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, we decided to redact all the videos and to describe the videos in words. And that was an interesting process, a kind of a video analysis, open source investigation that is basically words. Uh, we've done it several times. Uh, we've done it also in relation to one police shooting in Chicago when we were asked to present the work later in the, in the Chicago Biennale, Architectural Biennale. Uh, in the last minute, we felt mm, we're not going to put, we're not going to display that video. And we translated the whole work into verbal description of what you see. Um, and sometimes it works. And in this case, it did. Yeah. So the, there's always a, con a contract with the audience, basically, also, right? So It's not even the that. audience. It's the producer. It's, it's a much more intimate contract that you have because you have a contract with the producer sometimes you know you you you, you can take a piece of work you can pay money you have the rights for it etc um when when on open source it's 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 much more work of trust and um you need to see if um people sometimes put themselves at risk by posting things sometimes people post their own violations uh, and we see, we go like, oh, you know, if the police is now going to look at the Black Lives Matter platform that we've done, uh, they would see people, you know, making minor, you know, violation of the law, but violation of the law. And actually, our tool could be used by the police to hunt down these people. So we need to, the contract is much more, the contract between the, produ the producer of the image and the investigator is more intimate than between the viewer and the producer somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, is the, the, the producer is a collaborator of us. Uh, we care about them. It, it's not like we, we don't have, that we have a duty of care to anyone that produced this uh, material. For us, every video, every um, you know, user-generated video is also a testimony because a, a video records from both ends. It records what the person is saying, sometimes people cry, sometimes people shout, sometimes people curse, sometimes people explain. Very, very rarely do they not say anything while they film an important event. And one need to, to listen to, to people. Sometimes you cannot meet them. And the moment of intimacy is listening to the people that are filming something else. What's happening with them? Are they at risk? Um, are they aware of the risk? Uh, should we contact them, uh, etc. So that is, you know, you, you become very, very, the minute that you watch a piece of video that you find online, day in, day out, you spend like a good few months with a piece of video, you become very intimate with the video and with the person that's produced it. And you understand that it's, it's a matter of co-production, uh, even if you don't uh, meet this person. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Also, you're blocking the possibility of counter counter forensics, I guess. <laughs> so your work yeah, is exactly. evidence for something else. Hi, Nature. How are you doing? Good to see you. Hi. 
Hi, Marco. Good to see you too. I'm doing fantastic. And yeah, it's just wonderful to meet you. Your your work is beyond, beyond inspiring. Oh, come on. Um, oh, it was lovely to be part of this. Now, today, as always, we have selected three questions from the audience. The first one coming by Bernadette Buckley. I'm interested. I know her. Yeah. I'm interested in the way that you conceive of matter in a frontier between human and non-human, art and activism, architecture and justice. Given your absorption of multiple methodologies and modes of viewing and acting, how does the opening up of the imagination square with the production of truth? And how does the uncovering of truth produce change or does it? No, it's great. Thank you, Bernadette. And it's really nice to connect after long. Um, we used to be colleagues at Goldsmiths. Are we still colleagues at Goldsmiths? You know, we are kind of all a bit siloed here. Um, so the idea is that when you say that acts of verification, or what we call open verification, acts of collaborative construction, you kind of understand you, you have a different relation to truth than something that is simply there. So the kind of like the classic notion is um, to lie requires invention, imagination, construction, creativity. To find the truth is to allow the things to speak for itself. No? Now, I don't think that anything speaks for itself. I think that every act of speech is a translation and mediation and a construction. And that the minute that you start weaving through, you know, the aesthetics of leaves, of surfaces, of, you know, our own machine learning, you know, kind of classifiers, our ability to look at videos, uh, within architectural models, that requires imagination. The imagination of how things could connect to each other, of how to amplify weak signals. Because, you know, counter forensics is defined by the fact that the state always sees more uh, and has better access to the scene of the crime. We need to amplify weak signals. And you amplify what is there by weaving it together in an imaginative uh, way. So imagination and truth should not be thought of as opposites to each other, but as constitutive parts. And this is where also the relation to politics is, I think. Um, because for us also, the, the importance of each one of the cases is in opening up a political imagination, A, for possibility of, uh, of resistance, of the governed to those that govern us. Um, a different way of thinking through history in a way of this kind of telescoping that I said, within a split second, we find the long structural forces of, um, of the case. And knowing exactly how, and not always we manage to do it, but we always try, how to work tactically, how particularly this case has a coalition 
organized around it, it could be mobilized and could be produced political change. Because the fact and the legal case it is in is only as good as the political process it is part of. Thank you. Thank you, Eyal. Now, Micah asked the following question. How does forensic architecture approach the so-called environmental violence? Uh, so we have uh, a little section of forensic architecture called the Center for Contemporary Nature uh, that is uh, run by my colleague, Samane Moafi. Uh, and we are in it investigating um, environmental violence. Uh, and environmental violence needs that kind of telescoping uh, in a, it's a much more radical way. So sometimes we investigate a huge stretches of time. Our analysis of uh, the environmental violence against um, the threshold of the desert in Palestine, the destruction of that environment, uh, and the displacement of the indigenous people, the Bedouins in it, needed to rely on, on analysis of aerial images that are more than 100 years old, um, aerial images from the First World War, when we look down into the grain that in the negative and kind of find clues for what we were uh, looking to find, I, you know, you need to drill down to the molecular level of a film more or less, uh, as it is looking and studying and cataloging uh, contemporary vegetation in these parts, as it is about reading literature that is um, 300 years old uh, of travelers that have passed through this area. You know, when you don't have meteorological record, when, when you say that the issue of environmental violence need to reconstruct the weather uh, throughout centuries, and you know that uh, meteorological measurements have begun in, at least in Palestine around the, the 1930s, you need to find traces of the weather in the writing of people, in the price of grain, uh, in fossils, in all sort of other, um, you know, non-linear kind of uh, measurements. And you need to compose a kind of a long history from uh, from those small traces. Uh, and this is one thing that we're trying to do. We're also working in the tropical areas of the Amazon on, on uh, deforestation. Uh, we're currently working in Colombia for the Colombian Truth Commission also on issues of environmental violence on the Caribbean coast uh, of Colombia. Um, we had to reconstruct 100 square kilometers of landscape, tree by tree, landscape that doesn't exist anymore, within gaming engines, uh, because we needed to understand how the transformation of the landscape, the loss of the mangroves, the complete uh, terraforming of the area has, has changed with both environmental and human vi violence against the environment and violence against people. So uh, it's, a, it's a major part of our work and it's the frontier of our work and we want to engage more in that as we are uh, moving forward um, to combine frameworks of human rights and environment uh, together. Thank you. Now for our third and last question, 
RF is wondering if you could talk a bit more about the politics of dissemination and distribution of the traces you excavate. Is the scope to articulate a counter-universal truth, he asks, or create space for a diversity of perspectives towards a distributed truth? Yeah, I mean, initially, it's it, it's a kind of a, a, a practice that is oriented against government statements. We understand that the violence of colonialism, colonial violence, as I've grown up in the anti-colonial movement in Israel-Palestine could tell you, is always a violence against people and things, and it's a violence against the truth of what has happened. It's a machine, an epistemological wrecking ball that destroyed traces, that is, destroys history and destroy records. And uh, when I working on enforced disappearance, when forensic actors are working on enforced disappearances in Mexico, other places in the Southern American colony, in other places, you understand that enforced disappearances itself, a kind, it's both, it has one physical part, uh, taking hold, often killing and hiding bodies, and it has a bureaucratic part, which is the constant and always manipulation effect. So the enforced disappearance does not end until the epistemic part of that violence has not uh, ended, the bureaucratic part of that violence. Uh, therefore, it's not so much about allowing all facts to exist in a sort of, uh, you know, sort of, Parliament, equal parliaments of, of claims and facts, uh, because truth claims could be murderous and repressive and could be the condition for physical violence to take place. So they need to be resisted. Um, and they need to be resistant, though, not through a point of single perspectival expertise but through weaving together a common ground, the commons, from the multiple perspectives of all people collaborating on the investigations that have different forms of knowledge and that needs to be seen as equally important, the embodied knowledge and experience of frontline communities, um, the photographic intelligence of somebody with a camera, uh, the analytic skills of a scientist or technologist uh, coming together, mobilized through the work of the of uh, uh, of a good lawyer, which is always a pleasure uh, to hear. So you know, it's multiple perspective joining together, not to establish something solid, but the fabric of the commons that is always elastic and dynamic and could be morphed and changed as more facts are, are coming, uh, but not, you, so for me, it's not so much the kind of a, a good neighborly relation between opposite perception of the world, but a careful weaving of, uh, of multiple perspectives together in a way that sometimes is difficult and requires negotiation and always need to be remained open as uh, more facts come. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. And of course, big thanks to our online audience posing so many great questions in the chat. It was lovely. Now, Marta, Marta it, it was a pleasure and an honor 
to do this for eight episodes straight. And now for the last time, I give the mic back to you. Thank you, Naja. The honor was entirely mine. And thank you, everyone, for following us for the last eight episodes, a whole year of conversations with exceptional thinkers and visionaries like Ayel. Thank you, Ayel, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Again, thank you for your work, for your very, very inspiring, enormous body of work and experience. And I guess, I hope I'll see you soon again. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully soon. It was lovely. And uh, hope to see you all in Ljubljana at some point. Excellent. (laughs) Let's meet all in Ljubljana at some point. Well, bye to you all. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. This was the last episode. If you missed the previous ones, you can easily find them wherever you are listening to this one. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts Discursive Program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of Con's platform for contemporary investigative art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are furthermore welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenia. <laughs>